This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Diane Poole-Heller. Diane Poole-Heller is an established expert in the field of adult attachment theory and models, trauma resolution, and integrative healing techniques. She is a trainer, presenter, and speaker, offering workshops, teleseminars, and educational materials on trauma, attachment models, and their dynamics in childhood and adult relationships. With Sounds True, Diane Poolheller will be hosting a premier online event called Psychotherapy 2.0. Psychotherapy 2.0 is an online training summit which brings together leading experts in the fields of attachment theory, somatic therapy, neuroscience, mindfulness research, trauma resolution, and more. Experts included in the series include Rick Hansen, Ron Siegel, Stephen Porges, Bonnie Badnock, David Wallen, Peter Levine, and Dan Siegel. If you're interested in learning more about Psychotherapy 2.0, this online training summit begins on September 18th and runs through October 1st, and registration is free for each day of the summit. You can visit psychotherapysummit.com for more information. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Diane and I spoke about her background as a trauma specialist and how this led her to her current work with attachment repatterning. We also talked about the trauma freeze response and what to do when you feel like you've entered a traumatic state and are experiencing what she calls a death preparation response. We talked about how psychotherapy can help us access implicit memory and make it explicit, and how psychotherapists can best work with their clients to heal attachment wounds and create a secure holding environment. And quite honestly, we talked about so much more, including the latest discoveries in brain science that psychotherapists need to know. We talked about Diane Poole-Heller's work in the corporate world and more. Here's my very rich conversation with Diane Poole-Heller. Diane, one of the premises of Psychotherapy 2.0, and it seems to me also one of the premises of your online teaching work, is the notion that psychotherapy is right now going through what you call an evolutionary upgrade, that the field is changing dramatically. And to begin our conversation, I'd like to know, is that really true? I mean, isn't healing the human heart an ancient need, an ancient endeavor, if you will? What's really new 
in the field of psychotherapy that matters. Well, certainly we're we're incorporating the ancient wisdom. We would never want to separate ourselves from that. And build, kind of building a bridge to what we're learning, uh, I think, exponentially now. And that involves a couple things. One is, I really believe, understanding physiology as well as psychology and even spirituality is a really big addition. And I think that's been really highlighted in the last 25 years with somatic experiencing, sensory motor processing, different bodies of knowledge that are incorporating how our physiology responds to traumatic events, to different expansions. And that certainly includes Stephen Porges's work. Um, and a lot of these folks we're going to be um, interviewing in, the, in this series too, which I'm really excited about. But the other thing um, that I think is really cutting edge is kind of this integration. We have a lot more in the field a sense of synthesis, like synthesizing neuroscience and synthesizing phys physiology and psychology and spirituality. And we're bringing the benefits and kind of gathering all those wisdoms together in a more integrated and more functional way. We have this explosion of research. And then the big question is for all of us as caregivers is how do we clinicalize that knowledge? Like the fact, for instance, that Rick Hansen talks about that the brain is so biased towards fear and anxiety and negativity that positive experience, even healing experiences in the session, kind of, he says, run through the brain like a water through a sieve. Well, my goodness, if that's true, and we're not really orienting our clients to what's healthy and experiencing that in their physiology, in their body, in their emotional awareness, and also building it as a skill to take out into their life, then it could just run through, the person remembers the session as a positive experience, but it doesn't translate to their life. And so what we're learning, instead of just focusing on wound, which in my training, which is you know not that long ago, probably, I finished graduate school, oh my goodness, at least 20 years ago, more than that, 25 years ago probably, um, it was all focused on wound. Even Rogerian work, which I love, unconditional positive regard, all of that, was if you're not in the pain, you're not doing the therapy. Well, now we know as much as we have to help people excavate wound and, and allow that vulnerability and touch into that with the support of the therapist or partner or whoever the caring presence is, we also need to be feeding the attachment system and feeding the body and feeding the emotional self deeply positive, fulfilling uh, experiences of unmet needs being met. And there's lots of ways we do that now in the field to really nourish health as much as um, you know, really help heal wounds. Now, you mentioned your own training 25 plus years ago. Tell me a little bit about that and how you came to be sitting here now as someone who trains psychotherapists. Well, I started, uh, it seems like another lifetime ago, gosh, back way back in the mid-70s in really studying, uh, had a spiritual practice in the diamond work, which is an integration of spirituality and psychology. And then in that... As I was um, understanding that, I, I happened to have a, a head-on collision back in 1988, which is, was, I kind of broke the windshield with my head. It was a big deal. And I got a brain injury and all of that. And in that process of that 110-mile-an-hour impact, because both of us were going 55 oh and hit each yeah. other, it opened my trauma history. And in my spiritual work, there wasn't really a, uh, an orientation for that level of 
difficulty. And so I went on a search for someone that really understood trauma and ran into Peter Levine, who I'm deeply grateful for also in our our series. Um, and he really helped me understand how to come out of the physiology of shock, which is a whole body of knowledge that I'm still is extremely important and I rely on in my work all the time. And then he also connected me to Stephen Porges's work, which then makes a bridge in a way um, from really understanding what happens physiologically when we go into a death preparation state, which is actually compassionate, because in that state, there's a conservation of energy. We tend to disconnect and dissociate. So we're not in our bodies if we're going to meet death. We're actually not present if there's going to be pain involved in that. Um, and so some traumas will take us there. Like certainly head-on collision will put you there, right? Um, and then the, it's not so hard to go into a shutdown state, but much harder to bring someone out of it so they can actually feel their passion, their aliveness, their joy, their vitality again. And Stephen really did the research that validates so many other bodies of work out there right now, including mine, of as you untangle the threat response um, you kind of calm the amygdala, right, the alarm center, then you will sequentially start to shift physiologically from this really shut down, frozen, immobile state to a more active. In Peter's work, it would be completing defensive responses, you know, make me saying no or, you know, pushing away or fighting or running or whatever, uh, fight or flight. And as you finish that, then you naturally move sequentially into the prefrontal cortex, which you actually become interested and interested in others, but also capable of connecting to your authentic self, capable of discovering your own presence. And then there's usually this curiosity that arises from that to really wanting to be available and connect to others. Another, I think it was Lipton that said another definition of trauma is broken connection. Trauma really isolates us. And I certainly have experienced that in my own journey, the isolation, the effects of the being stuck in a death preparation state, you know, and the challenge of coming back out of that into aliveness again. So it was this car crash and then your own process that actually drove your development as a psychotherapist? Well, I was really curious about um, self-awareness uh, when I started the diamond work. And then the car crash opened up a trauma history beyond just the car crash that I had so well scaffolded and structured a, uh, an amnesia about that it took, I guess, the car crash to open it up. So I had sort of a double whammy. I had the physical injury, to, which was serious, to recover from. And then I had this, I could see, these were the cards I was dealt. I was, you know, if I was going to really be fully aware and be able to be present and, you know, move into the life I wanted to have, I was going to need to really take a lot of time to work through that history, um, which was not easy, um, but also really fulfilling from this point now that I've you know done so much work with it and everything I feel uh, the value of it almost like it was a gift it was me being sent to university in a way to understand uh, trauma the way I understand it now and now really to see the value of the attachment work that's my newest passion is like all these things build on each other but to really heal the, the lack of connection that so many of us struggle with and Dan Siegel would be the first to say that we've conquered in our pursuit for growth so many things understanding cognition, understanding emotion, even now really understanding sensation and body awareness, understanding even awareness of awareness from a spiritual perspective, like going into the absolute and complete just pure transparency, pure awareness without even phenomena, you know. But what the, he feels, and I have to say I heartily agree, is really the frontier for our work is in humanity. We're talking 
meta now, uh, is to really understand what happens when we connect, what happens between us as we're talking, what happens, um, how do we show up as authentically as we can and then be available for all the intricacies of intimacy or real connection with strangers, with, with people that we're, we love, with our kids, with our dogs, with our, you know, friends, with, with our clients, all of that. And that's, I think that's a really big challenge because it covers so many different dimensions and difficulties. And I, I'm just really dedicated to understanding that, you know, really we're talking about love. You know, we don't often throw that word around a lot in, in the field, but it is what we're doing. I think we're really healing our clients through love, and we also are learning what is that. You know, because we can't measure it, we don't use that word very much, but I think it's the right word. Now, I want to talk for a moment about this trauma freeze response, because what I noticed is as you were describing it, and you were talking about the car crash, and you were talking about the work of Stephen Porges, and you talked about going into this dissociated freeze state, I was able to connect to that just as you were describing it. And I'm imagining a listener might have the same experience and recognize times in their life where they felt that way, where they just felt, I'm dissociated now in this experience. I thought of the dentist chair as an example from my own life, but I'm sure other things came up for other people. And I'd love to know right now at this point in our conversation, if somebody's in an experience like that or connecting to an experience like that, what's your recommendation, how they work with that? Well, I think one of the most important things is being with someone that you feel comfortable with, you feel safe with, you feel like they have a caring reasonably attuned presence. They don't have to know exactly what you're experiencing, but they're there in a, as real a way as possible. Because uh, human beings experience safety through connection. Some species, you know, you watch dogs marking and all that, they feel safety by marking territory. I think they also uh, experience connection to safety too. But humans in particular restore a sense of safety um, through connection. And when you've gone into uh, what Stephen Porges would call dorsal vagal shutdown or a um, dissociative state or this, he also calls it a death preparation state, it means that your physiology has perceived a situation that might be getting triggered or you're in at the moment and then have it afterwards of uh, that your, your life could end. It's, I, you know, technically call the oh shit moment like, oh, here's a car coming at me like when I had the head on collision and you have that, you know, sort of oh, my God, this is it, Yeah, sort of feeling, um, very often then your body moves into this this experience. And so part of what the challenge is, first of all, it could you could be stuck in depression, lethargy, kind of a zombie death-ish kind of no energy sort of state. Yeah. You could have shallow breathing, so your brain's not even getting enough oxygen to really run properly, or in your whole body too. You could feel cold. You could feel paralyzed, especially when triggered into the event. And so part of what we're trying to do is help people move from a passive response to an active response. So they're going from immobility to mobility. So if, in therapy, for instance, I, I would uh, help someone gradually go towards that moment, but also probably talk about after first, you know, like, like that. What, when's the first time you felt safe after the car accident or the assault or whatever, and see if I can build a little bit of awareness that there is an after 
that I survived and I made it to get home where I started to relax a little bit with my partner, having a cup of tea and a hot bath or, you know, getting medical care that was just really loving and, and helpful. And so you're looking for resources, uh, experiences that you can build on after the event so that you start to build an awareness of after because people are kind of stuck in that moment or the moment before it happened mm -hmm. to try to avoid being in that moment, mm -hmm. right? So as part of it has to do with movement and time, and part of it has to do with what I'll say is, well, we now know that you survived this event. When you were going into it, you had no idea what was going to happen. You thought that was it, right? So now that we know you did the hard job of surviving it, that's the biological success, I want to slow this down or maybe even put that other car as far away from you as you want it to be. And this time I want you to have you, you to have plenty of time to say whatever you want to say, to make any movement like turning your car off the highway or yeah. you know, so you're you're giving them a safe logistical space. And I actually talk about this a lot in my first book, The Crash Course, because it was written about this whole experience of how to come out of these states, but um but that you want to make sure your body has a chance to actually slowly feel the intention of the movement it would have wanted to make if it had had enough time. Or if it's an attack, you know, to have like protectors show up and, you know, imagine them, you know, saving you or, yeah. you know, getting distance from the people that hurt you or, you know, uh, you survive in a supported way. And so you're kind of, you can create sort of a fantasy movie of a better resolution uh, and but actually feel it in your body and actually make the movements or if there's words that come if you can either say them internally but or say them out loud because you want to move from passive to active and as you move from passive to active you're switching from an overloaded parasympathetic nervous system to a sympathetic nervous system and from, from Stephen's work it's moving you physiologically up the scale it calms the amygdala it actually gives your threat response a signal that you're completing a defense and you're coming out in a, more of a sense of mastery and empowerment than being, you know, defeated and collapsed. And then as you experience that physiologically, whether it happened in reality or not, doesn't matter. When you feel it physiologically, then that naturally opens the pathway to your prefront, medial prefrontal cortex, where a lot of our capacity in the brain is oriented to deep connection with oneself, which takes you out of the dissociation. And then as you're finding your authentic self, then they're usually very shortly after that as a curiosity and openness to wanting to connect with other people. Mm -hmm. So it's, we're designed to heal. But I think it's so important that we understand, along with everything else that uh, we've all been studying, that we understand this physiological piece because it, it shortens what needs to happen in talk therapy or any other kind of therapy a lot. Mm -hmm. And there is necessary suffering, but I'm all about eliminating as much unnecessary suffering as we can. Let's be efficient about this because it's not easy. Mm -hmm. Now, help me understand in your own life path how you moved from being an expert in trauma resolution to now focusing on the attachment therapy work that you do. How did that development take place? It's quite, kind of like Ken Wilber says, you know, include and transcend. I, I've included everything I've learned in all these different stages and then synthesized them and then built uh, upon them. But in the trauma work, which I'm a big fan of, I think it's a fabulous, you know, you know really life-saving uh, understanding, uh, This adding the somatic piece and what Peter Levine has put together and Stephen Porges. Um, but... 
when I was working specifically with just really focusing on trauma resolution, the orientation was so much about self-regulation and, um, which is important, but, and working with the nervous system and physiology and defensive responses, what I was highly aware of, even from the beginning, was there's such a big relational component to this that really people that are traumatized will feel isolated, not just because they want to go home and lick their wounds, you know, and maybe they don't feel other people understand, but they literally go to a place in the brain and the physiology that doesn't give them access to their ability or their equipment, you could say, to connect. And I thought, this is a really, really huge deal, you know? So how do we find a way to bring this ability to connect to oneself, find ourselves again, and also find others, which is so important. And I'd go as far as to say is I don't think people can really heal in isolation. I think it's almost always true, and I would go more with the always, that you need to be in the presence of a caring other to really be able to have the the um, the healing happen. It, it's just too easy to let those dissociated fragments stay in place in isolation. The isolation perpetuates trauma. So this whole movement to what helps us connect took me to attachment theory. I just sort of had this calling all of a sudden. I couldn't resist. I was actually trying to get it integrated in the somatic experiencing model for 15 years. And there's, just, I mean, you can't teach everything. No training can teach everything, you know. Um, but then it became just an overwhelming um, orientation for me, and I just dove into it and started to get so much significant results. It was sort of like the missing piece, you know. I, and I felt when I added that in, and then that became a really total focus in itself – um, geez, the results people were getting in session, I could just see, it was just amazing. I, I found it was so, so helpful for people. No, I know and I've is... gotten that replicated as I've taught therapists. They keep saying the same thing. This is like the missing link. They've ha I've had that people say that exact phrase probably about 15 times. So I know it's a big question, but if you could summarize for me this missing link. I think for us, to, in a way for me, it's like going back into the DNA of human relationship or something and going into the blueprint of what gives us the capacity for healthy connection. And so much of that started in implicit memory, which I know is another probably question, but implicit memory is, I mean, babies are absorbing our culture, their mother, the world. I mean, they're, they're absorbing the mother, especially internally before they're born. But then they're just like little sponges. They're absorbing everything. And one of the biggest orientations the baby brain and baby body has is absorbing the relational field it's in. So what's going on between mom and dad? The, you know, the relationship between the parents is really important. Each parent or each caregiver's relationship with the baby, the baby's just really completely building a blueprint of this is how it is with humans and this is how it is in the world. So depending on what happened there, this template is getting really embedded, but you don't have a mind yet to make a story about it. You don't have an ego structure to put that anywhere. It goes directly into the body. It's in the blood cells, muscles, tissue of the body. So when we're trying to work with it, we have to know how to, that's why somatic strategies are so important. We have to know how do we access implicit memory bring it up into explicit memory, which then has a sense of time and location. Implicit, it just feels like now, 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 forever now. That's why later I could be talking to somebody who's 60, and when they hit one of those memories, it, it takes over their awareness, and they feel like they're in the now of it, even though it happened, you know, 60 years ago. Um, 
But when we go to explicit, you have a sense of time and location because you're accessing the higher functions of the brain, including the hippocampus, which gives us that awareness. You don't have a hippocampus formed as a baby. It gradually forms, and it really isn't very much formed until 18 months to two years. Uh, so you don't even have any way to organize that experience. So we didn't used to know about that very much as therapists. That's kind of, again, like you said, the evolutionary path. That's a new understanding. And I think what's even newer and what we're really trying to do in my model is how do we tap into implicit memory? How do we bring it up to explicit? How do we bring it forward so people can mature into their um, life experience as, as their current age, right? And repair what didn't go so well that created implicit memory wounds that you won't have awareness of. The tricky part as a therapist is people won't bring that in very much as, an, as a presenting issue because they're unaware of it. Well, let's try to break a couple of these things down. First of all, how do you access implicit memory in your work as a psychotherapist? Well, because it's out, it's non-conscious, pre-verbal, yeah. sub-psychological, you have to do something to trigger it. That could be a questionnaire. I have attachment questionnaires. It could be like one gentleman I had, his lovely man, he was a doctor, and he didn't have very deep relationships and had never really dated. And um, I, I took a, in my office, as far away as I could get from, I took a physio ball. And I said, I want you to imagine this is your best friend that you trust the most of anybody in the world. And let's say that was Jim. And so he imagined that. And I said, no. so when you're ready, I want you just to ask me to roll this ball towards you. And just let's see how that is for you. And as I, he gave me permission, I rolled the ball towards him. His body went arched back in the chair as far away as he could get. And his hands went out as if to protect himself. So he was saying a really major stay away from me. But he wasn't aware of it. I had to do something to trigger that implicit response. And the first time I did it, he didn't even know his body had done that. So I said, did you know, see what your body did? He goes, no. I said, let's do it again. But this time I want you to really pay attention to what your body's doing. And the second time we did it, same response because it's, it's just you know, encoded in the body, he did the same arching back and the pushing away. And I said, when you have that reaction to the, your best friend in the entire world, what do you think the message is he's getting? It's more of a rejection message. And then as we started to shift that from a pushing away to a receptive message or a welcoming message, and we had to do the work that we needed to do to do that, then that changes his relational dynamic. But you have to go into the foundation and then how it's expressed in the world will shift. Now, again, I'm thinking of a listener who might be having a terrible experience right now, thinking of their terrible childhood and various ways that they either pushed their parents away or felt they needed to because they weren't safe or had parents who were fighting all the time, something like that, and is asking the question, is psychotherapy really going to be able to help me with this? And how? How does that work? How is that operationalized, if you will? That Can this really be healed? I mean, you gave a fabulous explanation of how to work with trauma, but this seems even more difficult and terrible and stuck. Well, I, 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 what I'm so happily discovering is that with all the ways we understand um, I mean, attachment theory has been around for a long time, all the way back to John Bowlby, who really understood that it was part of our physiological design to want to bond and want to connect and to have what we call secure attachment. And then also a lot of understanding has evolved since then about the disruption as an attachment. What My main focus is on how do we clinicalize that? How do we like take, what do we do when we're sitting in front of someone that's trying to heal from those things? And partly it's, 
uh, how we presence ourselves, you know, our quali- our ability as a therapist to, to be in mostly coming from secure attachment, which is being prote- appropriately protective, being able to contain whatever arises in the client's experience, emotionally from everything from joy to anger to, you know, hate to sadness to ecstasy, whatever that might be there, expansion, and and how we meet that with the right pacing and dosing, I would call it, depending on what a person's cap- capacity is to process. Could be a little bit each session, could be a lot each session, um, depending on their window of tolerance or range of resiliency, I would call that. And our therapist's ability to be attuned enough to match that. And what I really want people to hear is there is so much hope. We are so designed to heal. Our fundamental design is secure attachment. We know what healthy bonding is. We might have to clear a lot of stuff that got dumped on it or interfered with it as kids. But fundamentally, your body and your emotional self and all of you wants to go back there. And you can recognize when you've had a healthy um, connection with someone. And then that needs to be emphasized. What I think has to happen in therapy is therapists need to learn to do a lot more feeding the secure attachment system, like giving nourishment to what the skills are and what the the awareness is in the client to, to highlight and, and um, help them rediscover that part of themselves and then also help them heal the wounds that were in, in the way of it. Feeding the secure attachment system. So how does a therapist do that? Well, the main things, and this, you know, you could be saying therapist or partner, because in attachment work, so many people heal in their important relationships. And that could even be with a best friend or somebody that they really feel is reliable and mostly trustworthy. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? People are going to make mistakes, but they know how to repair the mistakes. They get through things. Their relationship gets stronger. That could be their mate or their partner. That could be a really close friend. I have a client that has this kind of relationship with her neighbor. And they eventually ended up living together and they Mm. work all sorts of things out in in the context of that relationship to restore secure attachment. And for instance, one of the most important things is your tone of voice. Hmm. How a person's prosody, that's called, Uh, affects another person. And when we're in a relaxed, kind of soothing, modulated tone of voice, that's very nourishing for the attachment system. The attachment system loves that. Mm -hmm. If we're too shrill or too fast, that's an alarm system from the female voice to the tribe that something's wrong. And that'll activate your fear response. You can't not be activated because it's biologically programmed. And men, when they're threatened, they go into this kind of low, booming, loud voice, which will automatically take people into their amygdala and then, ah, you know, right into fear and threat. So people in couples or parents to children or friend to friend, we need to learn how to modulate our voice to keep people in a safe range as much as we can manage. And so prosody um, in a partner relationship, skin to skin, safe touch would be really appropriate. Right. And there's certain safe touch you can use as a therapist, like maybe a hand between somebody's shoulder blades or, you know, the foot on their foot. If they're needing grounding, there's certain things you can do that the client's comfortable with it. That would be okay. Um, Eye contact. You can Mm. easily send sort of a, I like to call it a beam gleam. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, even to your partner across the room at a party. And that that's a nourishment for the attachments. It doesn't take anything. It's like a split second. Mm-hmm. But it's like you're special to me. There could be like talking to somebody else. You're talking to somebody else. but you And your kid, you, when they're in the middle of a play, you can send this look of you're special to me. I love you. I care about you. It's that kind of look when maybe somebody didn't know you were coming over and you surprise them and they open the door and you, it's just so authentic and spontaneous. Like, oh, my gosh, Tammy, it's you. I'm so glad you're here. And you can feel mm-hmm. how real that is. Mm-hmm. That's a beam gleam. 
And you can do that. Try that with your dog. They'll respond. I mean, it's it's powerful. So there's all these ways to feed the secure attachment system. The most important probably is presence, that you show up, mm-hmm. that you're there authentically. And an attunement would be another word for secure attachment, that you're attuned when something goes off, which will always happen in relationship. It's not about being perfect. They say you only need, everybody should listen to this as parents and partners and therapists, you only need to be in attunement 20 to 30% of the time, according to Ed Tronic and Alan Shore, to have attunement and to produce mm, secure attachment. You don't need to be like trying constantly to, you know, just be this perfect. I mean, this is not, it's not an unrealistic system, you know, it's very forgiving. The the caveat to that is when you feel like, oh, something was off. I kind of rushed my kid out the door and I was kind of abrupt, you know, about getting him off to school. Is you can feel that kind of ick, ick feeling, you know, like it wasn't quite good. If you remember later when you have time or immediately if you can to repair that, to say, huh, honey, I know, you know, you were late this morning and didn't brush your teeth or whatever and I needed to get you on the bus. I'd like us to have a more relaxed morning, and I'm sorry I got a little abrupt with you. If you can repair it, then that bumps you up from um, John Gottman's research to having 80% chance of a sustainable, good-feeling, moving forward, optimistic relationship. So, I mean, if you get 80% return on anything, it's definitely Mm -hmm. worth learning. If you just learned repair, initiating and receiving repair in relationships to restore attunement, You'd, you'd be developing so many relationship skills. But you don't have to be perfect. Remember, 20 to 30% attunement mm-hmm. is all that's needed for secure attachment to happen. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, do you think that an effective psychotherapist needs to have created secure attachment in their own life, healed whatever their attachment wound might be, in order to do good work with clients? Well, we're all work in progress, so none of us are ever going to be perfect at anything. But I think it's critical. This is a really strong bias I might have as a professional that that therapists do do deep work and that they do their own work. The more we've gone into our own shame or our own trauma or our own... Um, maybe abandonment or neglect or intrusion, whatever those dynamics were in our early system or in our life in general, the more that strengthens our capacity to be able to meet a client in dark places and really stay present and be able to regulate ourselves and help interactively regulate with the client. Sometimes I call that co-mindfulness. You know, we're Mm. being with our own process, we're being with them, and we're kind of being also with what's in between the two of us. And that's a tall order. I think therapists and caregivers, nurses, all the people that are in those kinds of fields, they have very courageous hearts because they're not only processing their own human journey, they're really deeply, intimately connected to other people's deep, difficult spaces. And and to really, that's asking a lot, really. Mm -hmm. And to really be able to do that more and more effectively and also not damaging yourself, right, I think for our own health and for what we can really give as many clients as we can manage, and some people we can't manage and we need to refer out, that's normal. Um, 
then we just bring a lot more to the table and it's a good experience for the client and a really good experience for us. Part of secure attachment is containment. In an ideal world, which of course it isn't, our parents would have been able to contain whatever emotional, physical state came up for us as babies. And in an ideal world, therapists are repairing whatever parents couldn't do by being able to contain and maintain presence and regulation for all the various states that come up in the client's process. And of course, your own personal reactions, right? Because you're a human being too, you know? And it doesn't require perfection. If you're off, you can apologize and go, you know what? I, I really felt I missed the mark there. And let's talk about that. We need to be comfortable learning to initiate and receive repair also. So I've been in very helpful, positive, long-term psychotherapy that's really helped me. But one of the things I notice is that often when I talk to my friends and they present in a way that I think illustrates some aspect of insecure attachment, I think to myself, wow, they would benefit so much from psychotherapy. And I recommend this to people often. And I talk about how much benefit I've received. And I often get some serious complaints. I don't have the money for that, Tammy. I've tried that before and we went around in circles and no real change happened. You know, most psychotherapists are, are more screwed up than I am in my experience when I've really gotten to know them and talk to them. And really, that's the best thing you have for me, Tammy, after running Sounds True for 30 years. This is your recommendation. And I'm curious how you would respond to somebody like that who was throwing up those objections. Well, I think people have to find the path that really works for them. But I, I've found uh, for my, I've done therapy forever too, and uh, and also spiritual work. And I do a lot of, I'll do a lot of work on myself. It's one of the things I have as a really high priority. And um, I mean, I see the benefit all over the place. It doesn't mean you don't go through some difficult times or occasionally. I mean, I've had therapists I wanted to throw out the window too, you know, and also even some spiritual teachers that I didn't feel like were particularly helpful. But as I've sorted through and kept, as my needs changed, kept, um, you know, working to find people, I just feel like finding a good, it's almost in a way like finding a partner, you know, to find somebody that really can be the right person for you to, to do part of your journey with is just a huge blessing and a huge gift. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Um, and then I think some people really do a lot of their healing through maybe they they partner with somebody that has more access to secure attachment. And, and if you have insecure attachment, if we look at attachment for a minute, and you partner with somebody that has more stable secure attachment, they say that most people will shift to secure attachment within three to four years, sometimes two years, mm -hmm. because they're constantly getting uh, – being responded to in a healthy way like securely attached people don't get as ruffled by conflict they don't react so much they don't walk out the door i mean they, they hang in there they're not as dysregulated by it and when you're around somebody that has that kind of stability and that kind of ability to stay connected it starts to shift your attachment history and your attachment history is very sensitive to the relational environment that it's exposed to. So one of the smartest things any of us can do is find uh, someone that, that's willing to either work towards secure attachment or is already there. That, and some people heal completely outside of therapy to do that. So there's a lot of different ways we can move towards health. But I think um, it's just sort of like if you have a toothache, you could 
learn to live with it, I suppose, but it's just so much better to go to somebody that knows how to relieve that more quickly. And that goes to shopping for a therapist. I think for me, this is just my Dianism. It doesn't mean it would be true for everybody, but for me, the, and I sometimes patchwork this together with different resources, but I want resources in my life that understand physiology really deeply, that understand psychology, that understand spirituality, because I'm synthesizing them. And some people have two out of three, and some people have one, and, but they're really good at it. So I feel like there's so many different ways we're designed to heal, and at different stages we need an emphasis on different things. Like physiology is really important in my life right now because I'm recovering from a really difficult surgery. So helping my body come out of that death preparation state is really on target for me. So, But I'm doing it on all levels. I'm working with my spiritual folks with that. I'm working with my therapy folks and physiology. So, Now you talked a little bit about a parent that might be feeling regretful related to an interaction with a child. You know, I could have been more present and I wasn't. I'm curious to know what would be your 411, if you will, for parents who are very interested, committed to creating secure attachment with their young children. A couple things. First of all, secure attachment can be broken down into skills that you practice. So protection. Are you appropriately protective? Do you let your kid be self-protective and then you come in when they ask? Or do you pay attention but you're not hovering exactly or not being intrusive or taking over so you're disempowering a child depending on their age, right? Age and stage. Um, Are you aware of what's going on with them? Do you step in when they need to be, they need help? And um, do you let them manage to learn their own capacities as they can? Uh, so protection, playfulness. Are you having good quality playtime? This is with your partner and your kid, right? Are you having a good play zone? Playfulness is really nourishment for the secure attachment system. Tell me why on that one. Play is, um, it's like this positive experience in the brain that Rick Hansen was referring to. Like when we really have a, a deep experience of playfulness, it is one of the things that the secure attachment system just loves and shifts the brain. When you have secure attachment, I'm answering a couple different questions at once here, so you might want to circle back. But uh, when you move towards secure attachment, you're automatically moving towards affect and um, nervous system regulation. So it regulates your body. Everything in your body works better. Your heart rate, your digestion, your lungs, your breathing, everything works better. So you're in a good physiological state. You um, definitely go towards brain integration. You start to get right and left and all these different regions of the brain, hooking, connecting to each other and... um, sharing information. So a lot of us have different regions of our brain were not as available to us because of past uh, attachment issues or trauma. And the other thing that uh, secure attachment will take us to is a natural resiliency to post-traumatic stress. Lots of research that vets coming back even from the war now that had um, early secure attachment either don't get PTSD or they recover much, much faster than the soldiers that are coming back from difficult experiences we can only imagine, right? Uh, But when they've had also really difficult, disorganized, or attachment-disruptive histories, uh, they have a much harder time First of all, they tend to, to – it's more easy for them to move into symptoms of, post, of post-traumatic stress, and they also have a harder time recovering. So as we help people even regain secure attachment now if they didn't have it in the beginning, which that's the big hopeful message here, is you can uh, learn or Dan Siegel would say earn secure attachment even though you started with insecure. And we can all learn to function 
insecure attachment. So protection, playfulness, presence, learning to be, you know, show up and stay connected, learn how to interactively regulate. And even your comings and goings, how do you and your family uh, shift from a wakefulness to sleep at night? Is there a ritual? Is there something connecting? Is there a little storytelling or a sharing of a piece of chocolate or something or a sharing of the day? You know, three things that went well, two things that whatever, something where there's a connection. And then how do you get up in the morning? You know, do you share breakfast together? Do you, or, you know, are people just jumping out of bed and rushing out the door? How do you meet people when they come in the door? Do you drop what you're doing, not be distracted, and you actually hug them and let their, let your body regulate their body? Stan Tatkin has a lovely YouTube on the welcome home hug you can look up. And that you're, you're teaching the family or the bodies to, to interactively regulate. Uh, that's another big piece of it. So, I might have gone well, you further said with something, that than you wanted. No, it's good. You said something really interesting, that as we move into secure attachment, the way our brain function changes. Yes. It's so exciting. And you'll actually have some new behaviors. You don't even know why you're doing them. Like all of a sudden when somebody's really appreciative towards you, whereas before you might dismiss it, you know, um, you actually take it in and you can feel the love and belonging, right, that you couldn't have felt before or you start to uh, say hello to people in a different way or you start to make contact even in situations where you don't know people so well but there's a friendliness or an availability or a, a willingness to be vulnerable that starts to happen that is like wow you can see two months ago I wasn't doing that that wasn't available to me those are symptoms of moving and reclaiming secure attachment another one is a natural compassion and your ability to love it just starts to happen. Another one is feeling more global, like instead of like I'm an American versus somebody who's French or German or Afghanistan, Afghan or whatever. There's this um, instead of us versus them kind of thinking, you move into a all of us. And that could include ecology and animals and, you know, insects. I mean, it's just this feeling of there's life everywhere that's valuable. That's part of regaining secure attachment. It's no. big. I know, Diane, you also work in the corporate world, yeah. and you're actually teaching people, executives and other people within corporations, how to develop secure attachment and how that might impact their work. Now, this seems very far out to me and visionary that you could actually bring this kind of deep healing into businesses. So tell me a little bit about that. How does that work? Well, businesses are full of people, and people feel safe through connection. So how do we get to connection, right? The brain is going to be very occupied. Everybody who's listening can check this out for themselves. Our brain is very occupied with, am I safe? And it's like checking sometimes every four seconds for, am I safe? Do I belong? Do people like me? Um, are you there for me? The brain is always looking to stabilize its environment uh, in, the, in our neuroception, our, like our looking into the environment. If you can create an environment, whether it's at work or home or school, uh, where those questions are somewhat calmed, they're answered, like maybe you have a group meeting and people have a sense of belonging in that meeting, everybody's voice is heard, or uh, th there's a reasonable I'm there for you, right, in terms of help on a project or mentor or mentee, mentee kind of thing. There's a certain safety, uh, reasonable relational safety in, in the workplace or school at home. Then 
that all that like 80% focus calms down and you have all this room for creativity, innovation, getting the job done, uh, all of that. So I think there's, I think like Dan Siegel said, connection and our ability to do that is on the forefront of where our learning is, is in the human race, so to speak, one of the learning frontiers. And how do we take that into every environment? So really looking at how do we bridge that into the corporate corporate environment. And you can't, just like you said earlier, you can't ask people to do therapy or, you know, that's not your, in your, really your, your responsibility as a, a employer, you know, but to make things available or at least to have certain ways that people interact in the workplace can be really valuable. What do you think are some of the skills that can be brought into the workplace that would help people feel more safe? Um, I think often people don't feel safe at work. I could yeah. get fired. My manager could, you know, take something away from me. I mean, I don't feel safe at work. Yeah. I think partly is is when it's appropriate to be transparent about what people need to do for their work to be appreciated and where their learning edges are and to see what you can do to help them. I mean, you're not going to be able to – obviously, not everybody is going to fit in an organization. Sometimes people have to be let go. I mean, that's the yeah. reality. Just like in marriages, sometimes people can stay together and, or partnerships, and sometimes they need to split. But I think um, you the the benefits of saying things like – you know, I really trust you to do your best, or I know you made this mistake, and let's look at what we can do to help this turn out differently next time. What would you do differently? Here's what I might suggest would be helpful. Let's look at the options. Just how you interact in come into those conversations, um, I think, is really important. The languaging, the if you yourself can be relational with somebody, but. Um, there are advantages to attachment disruptions. Like, for instance, avoidant attachment has a is a little bit over left left brain, and uh, one of the advantages to avoidant is there's a lot of task focus. We need in a society people that have a strong task task focus. So at work, maybe uh, understanding that some people need to be left alone to run with their project is also okay. It's not all about you know teddy bears and <laughs> hugs and uh-huh. all of that. There, it's a it's but recognizing what people's needs are and also where uh, when things are getting in the way. People that are tilted more towards ambivalent attachment. I know we haven't described the definitions of these things, but ambivalent attachment, where there was a lot of unpredictability in their history and some intrusion, that sort of thing. They're kind of their attachment system's a little bit too on, whereas the avoidant is too off. But they they tend to be thinking about relational things a lot. Like if somebody doesn't smile, they'll obs- could potentially obsess all day about this person doesn't like me. What did I do wrong? What's wrong? You know, and that takes up too much of their brain, right? But that hypersensitivity to relationship can also eventually become a really strong quality of attunement. And they might be sensing something in a group that's off before somebody else might. So there can be usefulness in that, right? Um, But in general, I think the most important thing is, is that people aren't over-occupied with, am I safe? Do I belong? Am I liked? Are you there for me? Those questions, as much as we can answer them by the way we run a, a group uh, or a, a place of business, will open up a lot more space, literally, for innovation, creativity, focus, um, getting things done. So I want to circle back to where we started our conversation, which was talking about this evolutionary upgrade, if you will, that's happening in the field of psychotherapy. 
And I'd be curious to know if you were to summarize what you think the biggest breakthrough discoveries are. The big ones, the ones that are really moving the needle and changing the way that psychotherapists actually practice and interact with their clients, what those discoveries would be. I think the most relevant discoveries from my point of view are the about 20-year-old understanding of how to bring in somatic strategies, really working with physiology and how that relates to physical symptoms like digestive problems recur when we're in that death preparation state that as a therapist, I wouldn't have been even trained to know what that was. And um, that piece is really important. So I'm very grateful to Peter Levine and Stephen Porges for that. And um, the other piece is really understanding that so much of our relational history is locked into implicit, non-conscious or not conscious yet, um, pre-verbal sub-psychological territory. And that if we don't understand how to tap that, um, there's statistics from Alan Shore and a few other people that suggest that 90 to 95% of what's happening in our adult relationships, especially our intimate partnerships, marriages, and our people we date and are in committed relationships with, is really mostly informed by our attachment history. If even half of that is true, hmm. think about all the havoc that we think is coming from our partner, or maybe we're blaming yeah. ourselves for, you know, that is really coming from something we had no control over, intergenerational transmission of attachment patterning and parenting style happens naturally. It's not our parents' fault either. It's not our grandparents' fault. This is a human journey issue. It's, blaming isn't going to get us anywhere. It's just understanding how we can take what's off and move it towards secure attachment is the word we would use in psychobabble, but we could just say connection and love, you know, um, that takes us back to our healthy ability to relate. Connection is how we feel safe. Um, secure attachment insulates us against trauma responses. Uh, understanding the interrelationship between all of these things is really paramount. And then all the discoveries that are happening every minute now in neuroscience, like this understanding that you have to, to really challenge a neural pathway in the brain something that's kind of like a record player that's, you know, dating myself, even saying a record player anymore, um, but a record where there's a groove in your relational history or your response to the world or what you project out from your history that gets projected out on the world and your relational field now, to see that we have to challenge that with a different question, not just going around the track again, following it, right, and interrupt those associations with something new to create a little bit of dissonance so that the neural pathway that we have the firing from the old but then we have the neuro firing from what we're suggesting as a new what i would call corrective experience and then what fires together wires together so change is actually happening needs to be repeated a few times because history has a deeper groove right and that we the one of the biggest things that people might think sounds like not that big a deal but when you really think about it is huge is that we've all been practicing and trained for woundology Go to the wound, go to the pain, go to the stress, stay there, stay there, stay there. Well, you can completely overwhelm somebody and fragment someone by too much wound. But now we have the research from neuroscience to support what I've had a really strong feeling about since I started in 1987 practicing, um, that we have to create a positive experience. Like actually, instead of just feeling the unmet need or the abandonment, to actually feel the the um, the person you have that's stable in your life now or to meet that need that wasn't met 
in where our wounds originated, that we meet things with a positive and nourishing experience and hold our clients in the positivity till they really they're able to embody it. We expand and kind of milk it to say say to say it a certain way. We stretch the positive experience that we have to do that. This is what Rick Hansen's work's about when he wrote mm-hmm. the book on happiness that's so valuable. We have to hold the person in the positive experience long enough that the neural shift will happen. Otherwise, it just runs right through and they think, okay, that was a great session, but they don't take it out in their life. It doesn't fundamentally transform and change. So I think we're getting better, and it's probably going to get better next year and five years from now. The The ingredients it really takes for positive change and transformation. We've been designed for it forever. The ancient techniques work too, right? We, we are fundamentally designed to grow, heal, and transform. And that, that I think it's a very optimistic process. And I think you were mentioning friends that might have some resistance to this. I think finding a therapist that has integrated a lot of these things, I would say has a somatic and attachment focus for me would be what I would, you know, that's my bias, right? Um, and then also understands how to work with neuroscience. There's just a lot to know. And one of our goals in, you know, Psychotherapy 2.0 is to bring as much information as we can in a very efficient way to our whole community to start to bring some of those awarenesses, kind of highlights into focus from a training perspective, right? Like how do we take that into our practice and use it? And that's what I'm trying to do online every day too, just as like how do we – Create a safe haven. This is my personal mission: is how do we create a safe haven for therapists to dive deep into their own work and their and to experience their own transformation, so that that's just a natural then extension of what they are able to provide everyone that comes to see them. And I would extend that into the wonder and the amazing healing possibility that happens in intimate relationships too. Now you said something that I thought was very important which is that our brains can go in these record player grooves mm-hmm. and that something could happen in the psychotherapeutic meeting that could help someone create a new groove. And I'm wondering if you could give me an actual example of how that works and what the therapist is doing to help somebody create a new groove. You know, part of it is we've been really married to this idea of talk therapy, which has its place, and creating a coherent narrative out of your trauma history or whatever is part of a sign of healing. But we, it's so important that we're not just focusing on content. We've been very content-focused. And I use content very rarely, actually. I, If I know somebody had an attack, I don't even go into the details of that. I might in some sessions, but I'd, I'd know then that there's a victim-perpetrator dynamic, and I know that I need to give distance from the threat, freeze-frame the threat far away from the patient, the client, and then have them mobilize active responses. Maybe they have a, a, a per, people, they draw into their awareness uh, people that they feel are protective towards them, and they have help, and they, they defend against that distant threat at that point. Um, so that they start to feel this empowerment in versus being defeated and demolished by this attack, you know. So there's so many things we know sort of the mechanics of. Like I'm using the mechanics of going from immobility to mobility, going from passive to active, um, completing an active response. As that completes, the threat response 
decreases. That's a physiological reality. And as the amygdala calms down and the nervous system regulates a little bit more, it takes us right back into social engagement or the capacity to connect, which you could also call, you know, resurrecting secure attachment more completely. But very often in that transition from defending to then inviting connection, uh, if somebody had an attachment disruption, that's where it will come up. Like I've had clients where they're coming out of their process. They've just, you know, come out of some resolution of a piece of trauma. And then they look at me and it's like they just like they woke up, like they show up. There's this light coming out of their eyes and it's like they're back. And then it lasts for a second or two. And then all of a sudden they're into a shame or a disconnection. That's where their attachment history is showing up. And so then how do we help them move through that history so that that presence and that light coming from them uh, is able to be sustainable? And there's all sorts of ways, depending on what their history was, that interventions that you know I teach specifically in my courses about that. Now, you're hosting this online training summit, and you talked about your passion to be able to share so many of these different tools and really perspectives from different types of approaches and techniques. And I'm curious, do you really think that therapists can learn the newest discoveries and applications from an online offering, from online training? I started doing online training for therapists. It's been about two years now, and it's been kind of shocking how well it works. I, I really, for five years before that, I was people were telling me to do it, and I kept thinking, it's not going to, it won't be affected, it won't work. I was like a cynic, actually, about it. And when I finally dove in, we, I just can't tell you how many emails I get and, and thank yous and gratitude. And, and I'm very focused on making it practical. I mean, a lot of this is teachable and practical. And then we also do case consults. And, you know, we do question answers online, with like, it's like a closed group where we can, the other therapists can comment on cases or, you know, concerns or people's own private process if they're willing to share that and get support. I'm really trying to create a safe haven for, for therapists to to meet and not be isolated because it's a very isolating field. People are off in their office, and even if they're in a group of therapists, like they have a group practice, they don't see each other very often. They're all in their own offices seeing their own clients. So it's hard to have the kind of community that I think we especially need because our job is healing and we're having, I call them activation injections from other people's histories, coming at us all day long and how do we stay stable and do enough self-care, all of those things come up. And I think the online communities that we've created, and I'm always thinking of ways to improve it too, um, so I'm always constantly looking for better ways to do that, but I'm really convinced now that to have the impact and the ability to... uh, get education out there. My PhD is in higher education and social change. Like, how do we get information out there in an efficient way and a global way? We had 15 different countries involved in our programs. Even Kuwait. I'm like, how did they even find out about this program in Kuwait? Mm. I mean, it's a mystery to me still. Um, And that's the power of the internet, that we can use it. Instead of the internet being used for yucky stuff, you know, or whatever, we can use it for something transformative. And I mean, even Tibetan Buddhist teachers are on the internet sharing their wisdom in this way. So I think it's a great tool that we never had before. And for me, it was like getting a brain transplant, seriously, to shift from my face-to-face, only doing live trainings, to doing this. And then, of course, I do some live trainings as part of it. It's exciting to see what can happen with this new tool that we're just learning how to use. 
With Sounds True, Diane Poole Heller will be hosting a premier online event called Psychotherapy 2.0. It's an online training summit which brings together leading experts in the fields of attachment theory, somatic therapy, trauma resolution, neuroscience, mindfulness research, and brings forward other new discoveries in psychotherapy. Experts featured on the series include Rick Hansen, Ellen Bader, Sue Johnson, Ron Siegel, Stephen Porges, Michelle Wiener Davis, Bonnie Badenock, David Wallen, Peter Levine, Dan Siegel, and Esther Perel. All of these presenters and more are featured as part of Psychotherapy 2.0. This online training summit begins on September 18th and runs through October 1st. And best of all, you can listen each day for free. So if you're interested and want to attend Psychotherapy 2.0, the online training summit, you can visit psychotherapysummit.com. Diane, thank you so much for really being at the frontier of bringing education to people online. It's tremendous to have this chance to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I loved being here, and I was so excited for this event. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.